Welcome to the next episode of Planting Seeds with Senator Sharif Street. Uh, this is our third episode, actually. And normally we would have the senator on with us today, but he is, uh, he is not here because we have some very special guests. So I'd like to take a moment to introduce Tahid Chappelle, who is... Tahid Chappelle is an executive board member and a credentialed parliamentarian of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, which is the first and oldest association of black journalists in the country. An eight-year veteran of the media industry, has worked as a social media editor at the Washington Post, joined the Philadelphia Inquirer as audience engagement editor, and then moved on to the Free Press, a media policy nonprofit focused on equitable access for broadband and internet, the breakup of media conglomerates, equity and reparations in media, and the defense against government surveillance. In 2008, Tahid was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, an autoimmune deficiency disorder, and in 2012, he became a medical marijuana patient while living in Arizona after learning how cannabis can aid patients like him and managing their conditions. Now, Tahid, your your resume goes on a lot further than that. There's a lot of really great stuff that you have done and been involved with. So um, as we kind of move into this uh, discussion, certainly feel free to share with us any of those experiences. But I would love to start, if you don't mind, by kind of understanding, I, I get the, the medical you know patient part of this, right? But it seems like a lot of what you've done is really combining media with these these public policy issues. How did you kind of, how'd you kind of get there, I guess, is, is my first question for you. Oh, what a great question to start off of. I'm sure as many of your listeners will know and come to understand, everything is connected. In my personal journey with cannabis, I acquired more information about the history of the plant as I acquired more information about the media industry's role in changing perceptions and minds on what this plant was and what this plant isn't it was apparent that I had to spread the information and let people know about the truths and the lies and the misinformation that was circulated around this plant. So as I entered the media industry and my first job was in Arizona in 2012, I had just graduated from Virginia Tech as a broadcast journalist major. I had been consuming cannabis in college, but more so as a in addition to the partying and socializing aspect, I did not really understand the medical nuances behind this plant other than it was offered to me and I consumed it and I enjoyed it. So when I got to Arizona and I was talking to a colleague about my condition, ulcerative colitis, he looked at me and he said, you know, you can get a green card here. And I said, what do you mean a green card in Arizona? And he said, (laughs) you qualify for medical marijuana as a legal patient in Arizona. And this was in 2012. And this was in Arizona of all places. I was not prepared for that. When you're talking about a green card in Arizona with- Exactly. And, you know, with, with, so I was, (laughs) I was thoroughly confused when he said that because that language is used elsewhere. So I was not sure what he was talking about. So when it became apparent to me that I qualified- to access cannabis as a patient, that opened up my entire world into the medicinal plant. And as I started doing research on my own condition and the current but very limited research on what benefits the plant brings to people with IBD, IBS, Crohn's, and ulcerative colitis, more of that history was uncovered for me. More of that history was unearthed to me. And so As I continued my journey in the media industry, working in TV in Phoenix, working in TV in Sacramento, and then working at the Washington Post, all of that started just to culminate together. And as legalization continued to spread across the country from the West Coast and, you know, creeping over to the East Coast, 
it just became more apparent that more people needed to understand what was going to happen with this very, very large and very, very financially potentially gaining industry that was coming up. So that's how I started really bringing the intersection of media and journalism and education information with the support of historical information, documentation, and though limited research of cannabis to the forefront. Gotcha. Oh, that's a that's a great great explanation. Although I do have to question both your move to Arizona and and also get it was my first them. job. My first job as a as a you know fresh out of college, you got to take what you get sometimes, right? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And you know, one other interesting you know just kind of side note, I'll call it a stoner moment. Is that I, I when I talk to people who understand cannabis, who are involved in cannabis, myself included, who they often reference things like kind of clicking into place, you know, journeys, things like that. It, it's really interesting that it does seem to unlock the ability to put different parts and pieces together and see a path for, for many people that maybe they wouldn't have seen otherwise. So I think it's just kind of a great way to to talk about how that, that happens. There's an unlocking of consciousness that happens, I think. There's a discovery moment. It may not always be an instant eureka moment, but there is those moments that culminate into my goodness, right? 100% not eureka moments. In fact, if you're not paying attention, you, you may not notice them, but when you pay attention, that's when they kind of jump up. I've had a couple of those recently, so just was was thinking about that as you were talking about your journey. So so that's interesting, this, this combination with media and, and advocacy, because Actually, our last podcast with the senator, I I, happen, I noted the fact that as I was doing research on the bill was for uh, decriminalizing in, in Pennsylvania, all the images that I saw with the media stories were kind of salacious. It's, you know, someone with a, a pipe and a, you know, lighter and, you know, bongs and these images that are, it's not that they're not true. Of course, people consume that way, which is, you know, no judgment at all, of course, but that is the image that comes forward. And for people who are not familiar with cannabis, that's an image that, creates, you know, fear and uncertainty about what this is. And it looks similar to other drugs like crack or, you know, heroin. And it just, it just yep. kind of reinforces that. So how do you, in your work, knowing that you're kind of combining these two things, how do you really change that? How do you change their, because I know on the PR side, they grab an image, they run a story and, you know, that's that, right? So how do you change that? Changing being inside of newsrooms for almost a decade now, Changing the culture and the perception inside the newsroom and working with colleagues who have those areas of authority to make those decisions, especially editorially, is a very hard game. It's a very long game of trying to address those internal biases and stigmas that ultimately show up in the final product of a newspaper or TV show or a digital article. And so it really comes down to educating internally and me having to talk to my colleagues and providing and passing on the, the same information that really unlocked my own mind and understanding about the visual aspects of, of cannabis use. In many, many ways, when I have talked with my colleagues, especially if they were a photographer who was focused on putting on, you know, relevant photos with cannabis related articles or talking with an editor who was deciding the headline, because, you know, people still love their puns, talking <laughs> with those headlines and kind of talking about the impact of what those decisions mean and the you know, valid community response that they get when they subsequently get those emails about people complaining about the way that cannabis is projected in their storytelling. Mm. So it was a lot of education. It was a lot of 
unlearning for them. And it was a lot of utilizing anecdotal and real life evidence and impact that these decisions have an impact on our readers. And as we see in the media industry, there's a lack of trust already. There is a ongoing consolidation of media right now. Uh, journalists and newsrooms cannot afford to alienate uh, potential and current readers. And so when you have a, a lot of people who utilize cannabis, especially for medicinal use, seeing themselves not reflected, but further stigmatized, they're no longer going to support a publication. They're no longer going to turn on the TV. And having those editors kind of understand those implications, it does make an easier conversation to, to start changing how we showcase cannabis use. And, you know, sometimes my entry point is instead of using somebody who looks like they may be using another drug paraphernalia for another harder substance, let's use an elderly person who does accurately reflect some of the patients using cannabis to help treat them their, themselves, right? People tend to like elderly patients as well and the way that they look and the happiness and the quality of life, right? So those are the types of changes that I had to to work on. I can't say it was always successful. I can't say that I stopped all bad weedy puns from coming out. Oh, but as much as, as much as I could have interjected, I think it's important for people like me and people who have that level of consciousness and involvement in cannabis to be in those spaces to, to stop those things and prevent them and then change the culture so that they never have to see that again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually kind of what I call hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's what I've also, you know, being in the cannabis industry for over a decade, uh, have also done, you know, in, in terms of whether it's it's meetings in different states with government officials, but being able to create that connection one-on-one -on -one and really help people understand is an important part of, I think, advocacy and what we do. A couple of a quick follow-ups. So how much resistance did you meet with? I'm just curious, like, if you, if you were to say a percentage, like 80% of the people that I that I talked to in the newsroom kind of got it and 20% didn't. What, what did that look like? And how many of them started with them making a pun initially? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would say in, in all the newsrooms that I worked in, I would say it was a good 75% that were, that were pretty understanding and on board. Journalists just love to have a good headline. They like to think that it's attention grabbing and therefore it is good enough. But we have to be conscious and intentional about how we are talking about this plant, especially given its history. So it was more so not so much of, hey, you, you know, this may sound funny internally, but outside it's not funny. Keep it to yourself more mm -hmm. so than those conversations rather than, hey, this is completely garbage and you need to change it, but kind of to, to massage the language, so to speak. So I never really got too much pushback, but I really did have to add a layer of seriousness to it because yeah. too many people take this as a joke, as if it's funny. And there are obviously awesome fun parts of it, but more so it's more serious to me than it is the funny. And, and it's crazy to think, like I, I talk about this with politicians too, like the, the polling numbers, which is seemingly all they care about, right. Are so high, like 70 plus, you know, North of 70% of people are in favor of legalization as a yeah. newsroom. You would think, well, that, you know, like you said earlier, like people reading our publication or listening to our newscasts, they seem to be in favor of this. Let's treat it favorably, you know? It doesn't and let's sense. add more resources. Let's bring more reporting on it. Let's start yeah. expanding the scope of our coverage so that more people can be educated and informed because we know legalization is coming to Pennsylvania. A place like Philadelphia can really benefit from that level of information so that they're prepared for what's to come. So here in Colorado, a good friend of mine, Ricardo Baca, became the first cannabis editor for The Cannabis, which was by, from the Denver Post. And... Man, it was going great. They were a major ad revenue source. 
excellent reporting. And then they just, boom, overnight, just pulled the rug. Like all of us were shocked. Like, well, why? I don't understand. Like there's, there's a burgeoning growing industry. Why would you do that? I never got a good answer, by the way. I don't really think to this day any of us understand other than politics and money, it's, I guess. It's the business model that newspapers specifically, and TV stations will feel this too, eventually, don't worry. But newspapers have built a business model that is no longer sustainable or reflective of the times. They did not modernize. They did not innovate fast enough. They did not adopt and acquire and engage with technology fast enough. Yeah. And they continue to believe, in my opinion, in a very narrow set of what will generate money without diversifying their portfolio. And a multi-product, multi-service company, um, they are very narrow. And, and unfortunately, that's just not a sustainable model. And really, shout out to Ricardo, because he's actually, he, when I went to a little, a little side note here, when I went to a journalism conference in Colorado in 2016, before Trump got elected, this was September, yeah. I remember it clear as day, went to Colorado for a journalism conference. They had a panel on legalization of weed and why journalists should be covering the legalization of weed and why it needs to happen. And so Ricardo Baca was on that panel and he got up to the mic and he gave a really awesome rant on the drug war. Everything you know about marijuana is a lie. Everything you know about the war on drugs is a lie. The government lied. The media played a role. It's up to us. He was literally on fire on that yeah. mic. And then there was another woman, Nushin Rashidian from Cannabis Wire, who also gave a really good rousing speech. And that is when everything started to click to me too. Nice. If it wasn't for Ricardo and Nushin, I really wouldn't have that level of like that, that connection of media really changing hearts and minds, but that changing of the hearts and minds led to more drug drug laws, right? So if it wasn't for Love Ricardo it. and seeing his trailblazing efforts at the cannabis, you yeah. know, I definitely wouldn't have been as informed or involved as I am right now. You mind if I share that with him? Oh, definitely. Your, oh, so. he knows. He he and I are home. He he knows I love it. Oh, okay. Send the, continue to send him my praises because <laughs> I truly him and Nushin, I don't give them praise enough. They they really did enhance my trajectory in this work. That's awesome. I want to switch gears real quick and, and tell me kind of how you've taken this forward in terms of the conferences and then maybe where that takes you next. Like how how are you pushing forward even further? As you mentioned in 2019, I did find the uh, Color of Cannabis conference in Philadelphia. And you know, Philadelphia is predominantly black city. It is a city that unfortunately suffers from a 25% poverty rate. That is the it's you know, unfortunately labeled the biggest poorest city in America. And so understanding what legalization meant for other states in terms of new tax revenue, in terms of equity, in terms of addressing the war on drugs, I wanted to get people together to have that conversation yeah. with the lens of how can journalists in our community do a better job in amplifying and educating and doing these outreach, right? It has to be a multi-pronged effort from community stakeholders to the government to newspapers and journalists. They have to be working together, public health officials together to do these types of information outreach. And so the color of cannabis was kind of that culmination of that. And it was a wildly successful conference. We had, we had more than 150 people show up. A lot of the speakers wow. now who were there in 2019 are now like running the show in their respective states. Nice. I was very, very excited and very impressed that the people that we were able to bring were on there. And I think if you search color of cannabis, we were able to get it recorded. At least half of the conference was recorded. So I believe I have four hours of the conference itself on YouTube. So if you look up color of cannabis, you should be able to find it. Um, and if not, people can reach out to me and I can send them to them. But that experience 
was expanded into 2020 into the Can-Atlantic Conference. And the yep. Can-Atlantic Conference was the first mid-Atlantic regional cannabis conference. Again, bringing people from around the state of Pennsylvania to be like, listen, once one state legalizes, it's a domino effect in this region. And this is a power, the mid-Atlantic region is a powerhouse region, especially when we're talking about interstate commerce, right? Oh, yeah. um, from New York all the way down to Richmond. And so and so the Can-Atlantic Conference, even though we had to shift it online because of the pandemic, that brought in more than 400 people globally to look at the regional aspect of, of the cannabis industry or mid-Atlantic region. And at the time, New Jersey and New York were basically competing against each other to try to legalize first. So it was a perfect timing to talk about the implications of what that meant and how, again, a place like Pennsylvania, you know, conservative, a little bit slower in the decision making would be impacted by such changes. And so since the Can-Atlantic Conference, you know, the pandemic has been going up and down. I've been, you know, unfortunately dealing with a lot of family caretaking and other things as well. So I, I do owe the community another camp conference to come. We are figuring out what we want to do next year. I will plug in that if you are in Philly or interested in coming into a really good cannabis conference that I also help uh, with organizing, it's called Black Cannabis Week. That is a week-long celebration in September in Philadelphia that talks about the intersections of uh, cannabis and communities of color, and it's a week-long celebration of the plan and educating people about what's happening in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia as well. So the education continues. I myself am still brainstorming what I want to do after the uh, success of the Can-Atlantic Conference, but Black Cannabis Week is also something that I participate in in September in Philly. Where, where can people, it's like URL, so basically people can go to- Oh, if you look up Black Cannabis Week Philadelphia on Google, you can Perfect. instantly find it. You'll, you'll be able to find us for sure. All right. So, so last question. Given what you just said about the the conference itself and, and the purpose in terms of raising visibility for the Mid-Atlantic region, New Jersey's now legal. New York has had a really kind of weird, rocky start to their to their legalization. You got, you know, you got Maryland in there. You got, you know, so where does Pennsylvania, what is that looking like? Listen, time's a ticking, time's a ticking. Right. I will give it, I will, I will be, I will not be surprised if something passes in 2024. I'll give it then. But I would not be surprised if things were pushed until 2025 after November election. I listen, 2024 is a huge political year. Oh. So I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if lawmakers are a little bit, even though we know cannabis is a huge support, I wouldn't be surprised given the makeup of the current legislature in Pennsylvania that things move slower than anticipated. You know, I would hope that Pennsylvania has a very solid, compromisable bill by the, you know, by the Q2, Q3 of 2024. So, you know, next next two years, everyone needs to prepare. Next two years are going to be very impactful for Pennsylvania, yeah, in my opinion. For sure. Yeah. Punting things down the field is kind of what politicians do best, it seems like. Yes, they do. Oh, we don't want to do that now. We're just going to punt that. So, right. Um, well, well, thank you uh, to you so much for, for joining us today. Really enjoyed meeting you and hearing a little bit more about your story and kind of what you're focused on and wishing you the very best of luck as you move forward. And hopefully we'll hear some some great things in the next uh, several months about the, the legalization efforts and where your involvement might be. So I appreciate it. More. And uh, if there's one last thing that I could put in for listeners, particularly if you want to go down the same journey that I did in, in terms of opening up your consciousness, there's a couple of books. There's a couple of books that I have to uplift for people. First off is New Jim Crow, 10-year anniversary, Michelle Alexander. You have to start there. The second one is Marijuana Reconsidered by Dr. Lester Grinspoon. OG, rest in peace to him. He basically wrote this book to try to out-argue Carl Sagan about the dangers of cannabis, and he was completely revolutionized by his research. 
And then the third book that I have to promote is Smoke Signals um, by Martin Lee. Those three books, you read those three books, your eyes are going to open. So listeners, please pick up those books. You will not be disappointed. Awesome. Great reference. Great resource. Thank you. We appreciate that. Our second guest today is Haitu Abi. She is originally from Philadelphia, uh, comes from an Ethiopian-American family that spent significant time on the East Coast prior to relocating to Hawaii. And after completing her undergrad degree at the University of Hawaii, Sahaitu returned to the East Coast to earn her master's in uh, business administration from Lincoln University. From there, she her focus narrowed in on business entrepreneurship, marketing, and community. She has over 13 years of organizing experience in labor, community, and political issues across the United States. A few of these including things like uh, raising the minimum wage, voter access, reproductive rights, equity in education, hospitality work, agricultural practices, and creative expression. With all of that, she has now kind of uh, put that also into uh, organizing around cannabis and hemp industries with the Black Dragon Breakfast Club, which we're going to talk about in a little bit as well. So welcome to the show today. Appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for that introduction. <laughs> yeah, well, Glad you know, to be here. Easy, easy to read, but I'd love to hear you know a little bit more from you, kind of like the, the journey, the path to cannabis involvement, because obviously you have you know, great history and experience in terms of organizing, in terms of um, understanding issues and how to bring them to the forefront. But, you know, cannabis is relatively novel in the big picture of things versus things like, you know, reproductive rights and whatever that's been going on for an awfully long time. So tell me a little bit about how you ended up involved with with cannabis as an industry and then also your organization around things like the Black Dragon Breakfast Club. Let's see, how did I get into the industry? I mean, I, I would start it off, you know, like most people, they do their cannabis journey. So like most kids, you hear about cannabis, the term weed in high school, and then you hear about it maybe in college if you went to college, you know, so I heard about it in my teens. And then when I got into college, there's a white guy named Bill, the University of Hawaii that was like, this is how you smoke weed. <laughs> and so <laughs> that was my introduction to cannabis. But um, it wasn't until I ended up um, living in California and living on a cannabis farm out there um, with a farmer that I kind of got more of like an industry perspective. And that was about 10 years ago. And you then lived, you lived on the farm itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In Mendocino. Were you involved with the, the growing, trimming, harvesting, any of that? Yeah. yeah so I'm allergic to cannabis. I'm oh. allergic, like the, the pollens. <laughs> oh so I will get high. You know, if you rub the, the 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 cannabis on your arm or something like that. So I could only do it so much. I'm not I'm a trimming queen, absolutely. But I had to be covered head to toe, have to have the ventilation, wow. gotta have the double gloves, everything in order, yeah, to do that. So I knew that kind of scene of yeah, you can make some quick money and trim way better than like a an hourly job, right? <laughs> and I'm great with my hands, but in terms of like growing and planting, I could only participate to a certain degree because once your plants get too too big outside, now you've it's, it's a little bit wild. You don't even want to touch them because they're they're juicy and oily. So, <laughs> Which, so I got to get for some people that's a great thing, but it's a it's a great that. thing. But you know, thinking about opportunities, I knew I couldn't be the person in the greenhouse. I knew that there was going to be a certain point where I would have to stop. So the idea of being a grower, it just it wasn't going to be feasible for me. But I was fascinated with the space because the person who had kind of exposed me to it, they started off going to college, you know, trying to live their life and was just like, this isn't working. And I got to see the culture of folks just working in a working on somebody else's farm, living in a trailer park, you know, saving up and 
getting $10,000 one summer in buildings. So I kind I saw it more from an entrepreneurial perspective versus like just judgment. Also, it's a whole industry. You go to Home Depot and the clippers and the turkey bags are right next to uh <laughs> Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, I mean, at the Home Depot in Mendocino. So I'm looking at it from a this is an industry and this mm-hmm. just didn't start. This has been going on for a while. That person also was growing a strain that his dad had created, you know, decades before. So I'm also kind of a yeah, you know what I mean? I'm DIY as well. I'm coming from Hawaii. I'm coming from like, you respect the land, you understand the land in Hawaii. So I'm coming from a way different perspective and seeing it in that way. So then when I came out to Philadelphia about t- 10 years ago, cannabis user, but I never understood it from a medicinal perspective at all. Even when I got my card in California, the doctor was like, it was more a conversation about not getting in trouble with the law than how you take care of yourself. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and that's in, in a way it was almost like the undertone is we all know cannabis is health is is is, is a helpful. So what I'm gonna teach you and warn you about is the legality. So don't get caught with too many pounds with you because I can't help you. Your cart won't save you. <laughs> right. Yes. I also got to see like there's state laws, but then there was the federal. And so you hear these stories and you live up in the mountains that somebody got raided. Like, what do you mean? You go on Google Maps and you can see your backyard. You can see the plants in the backyard on Google Maps. <laughs> Anybody who's grown, who's been, you know, Denver, any place where you can legally grow, you know that Google Maps, you can like zero in on an address and you can see plots of, of plants depending on when they took those pictures. I've never, I've never been a grower, mostly because I, I don't know how. I'm not very good at, I don't have a green thumb, but I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, that's, that's an interesting point. Think about the paranoia. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you can't call the cops and you can't call the cops uh, no. and your neighborhood knows the kids who grow and the kids who don't grow because who else can afford a f-150 at 23 years old and you love to live up in boondock somewhere three hours away from the city right right exactly and they're on it only seems to smudge skunk in your around your area you know you know so anyway i come out to philadelphia and i'm using cannabis but it's very different scene and i had known that from when i was even in my 20s, you visit the East Coast and they're, you know, they're consuming dirt weed and you're like, what is this? And I'm, I'm back in Hawaii in my 20s and I know just luscious land. Anything you grow in the land of Hawaii is going to be beautiful. So if it's cannabis, it's go- of course it's going to be great. I, di- I, I didn't even think about what I had. The you know what I mean? Yeah. The quality. Like I'm, I'm consuming cannabis for the first time in Honolulu. Uh, so you, you started off from the point of, it, of being spoiled. Yeah, I grew up in I grew up in Texas, so that tells you anything. And I'm much older than you, so it was a long time ago. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I'm gonna tell you something funny. It's a funny story here. So I come out to Philadelphia. Boom, boom, I'm I'm here navigating. I'm in the service industry. I'm also an organizer. I also consume cannabis. I'm also I'll just leave it there. And so I, I get in an opportunity where I'm working at a startup, and I'm just around a lot of people. And it's very different from my organizing work, labor organizing, very different scene when you're with a bunch of creatives who want to be superstars and own startups, you know, that kind of culture. And so there's opportunity, um, there's just different opportunities and I was meeting different people and I hear about a cannabis conference okay. and I wanted to go, but it was like three, $400 tickets or something. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm like, how can I go? And because I'm in this creative scene, the marketing, the branding, you know, if you say you've got a crew of people, call somebody up and say, give me a free ticket. I can bring these people. <laughs> so 
I sent an email out to the organizers of the conference. And I said, I'm in the creative scene and I do this and I can't afford it, but I need some tickets. And they gave me three tickets. <laughs> awesome. I then go tell the startup that I'm working up about it. And they're like, oh, yeah, they gave us a bunch of tickets. That's four tickets. Oh, oh, because, you know, okay. startup worlds, right? Okay. Cannabis. I'm starting to see, oh, cannabis is startup world. Oh, yeah. So I, I invited two people to the conference with me. One person now owns a brand. The other person was doing other things. And I got to expose in this space. And I called another friend who's a videographer. And I said, come with me. We're just going to create some content. <laughs> All right. That's, that so it's a, right, it's a two, three day event. And we just start creating content. I invite one person, then another person the next day. And just a lot sparked off from that moment. And so I say that it positioned me. And from then, I started to do these private events called Rising Grinds. Because I know from the organizing, you have to bring people together. I then had to educate myself. I take a design thinking class to figure out well, what is the problem in the cannabis industry? I then realized, oh, you got to change the perception. I was like, okay. what did you start when you asked yourself, what is the problem? Because it's a long yeah. list. Well, so the one of the people I started, I, I started my business with two people. One person, she has her own brand. Another person comes from a more organizing and creative background. And so together we're like, hmm, we're blending two things. This is startup energy. This is cannabis. This is education. This is a social movement. And so that's where we kind of come up with the the foundation of you need. It's a, we're dragons and we're creative and industrious. And we have our tagline and our value proposition. And then eventually I, I take it on my own and now I'm just the founder and I'm kind of trying to dive into what is the problem we're solving? Oh, I'm solving the problem that we have to change the perception of cannabis. Like you can you can change the laws eventually, but you still have to change the perception. And so from all of that, I end up learning about it. I end up going through, I need to get my medical card, but I think the CEI, CIA and FBI is going to follow me. So you go through all these phases of like, but wait a minute, <laughs> chill. <laughs> so then I finally get my card and then I finally come to terms with this is medicinal this isn't recreational I start going to therapy I start having conversations with my mom about it I start having cooking events this is also happening during COVID now it's about four years into it and I'm having conversations with my dad my dad is Ethiopian I'm black my mother is black American my dad I have not I don't know my dad I've only met him once because I was able to get a ticket to go visit him he while lives it was in Ethiopia living. currently. He lives in Ethiopia and he he had been deported. I knew he'd been deported because when I was a teenager living in Hawaii, in Philadelphia, I got a letter from a penitentiary in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I hadn't heard from him since I was a baby. And then we get a letter. We know he's in prison. And I, I didn't know why he was there though. My mom didn't tell me exactly why. I heard some stories. They didn't they didn't feel good. Yeah, <laughs> And I had a very estranged relationship and I, I didn't have no extra money to try to go visit my dad. So when I was on that farm, I made some money. I booked a ticket and I saw my dad, but I was only there for 10 days. So you fast forward 10 years later or so, and I'm doing this work in cannabis. And it's also the pandemic. And so my dad can't really do much work, which is like tourism in Ethiopia because of the pandemic. And I don't have many things going on. And I'm just on WhatsApp. And so we're talking and he tells me he was deported for growing cannabis. Oh, no kidding. Red. <laughs> okay. So light, light bulb goes out. Connections made. Okay. In fact, he met my mom in Hawaii because he was growing cannabis for a white guy who he met in Santa Cruz in the 80s. Very interesting. So you have a- Because he didn't want to be a security- Yeah, because he didn't want to be a security guard. Because that's what the immigrants be doing. You got to be a security guard. To this day, there's Ethiopian security guards. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just a- 
there started to become these crazy full circles. And, you, you know, there's the business of cannabis, but there's also the war on drugs and the trauma and the social part of cannabis. And there's also the medicinal part of cannabis, but then there's also the personal accountability <laughs> right. and in so many ways. And then there's the, the economics of cannabis. The It's a job for some people. But then that job can look different depending on what you look like. The guy that I, the guy who exposed me to cannabis in California is a white guy. So when I was there, I was thinking, what would it be like if a black person was doing this? And then you fast forward and I'm talking to my dad and he's telling me he was doing this in the 80s. Now he's giving me his perspective about it. Now, mind you, in Ethiopia, you do not do cannabis in Ethiopia. Right. <laughs> Don't you dare. Unless you're in Shashamani, the one area where the Rasas are. And then maybe you can get away with it. So... But hold it's on, just, let me ask you a question. So when you when you said that, knowing that he had been incarcerated, knowing that you know he had this history there, was he like, great, keep doing it, push forward, or was he like, you should go away? He respects. He respects what I was doing because okay. he he knew what I was doing. He understood like I'm an organizer. You know, when he told me to go get a master's in business, I went and got one. Maybe I couldn't go to the Ivy League, but I got one at Lincoln. So he knows that he he knows my spirit. And he knows that the purpose is for a particular reason, but he also knows it's the illegal drug and yada. He also knows the value that the help that cannabis provides because he comes from like alcohol, you know, like his, his, my grandfather was a general in the war uh, in Ethiopia. And so he knows alcohol, like people drinking alcohol. My mom knows people drinking alcohol. So cannabis for him, he's like, if this calms you down, this helps you, you know, it's good. Um, and in terms of the business side, he knows that there's he knows that I'm not selling weed. He knows I'm not growing it. So the, the work that he sees me doing, he's like, this is great. But he also knows I have to build my life. I, I'm also living in Philadelphia trying to make a life for myself. Mm -hmm. So make sure you take care of yourself, basically. And and I mean, so this to today, I, I've said this to people. I've had to kind of pause on just trying to make money from Kent from Black Dragon Breakfast Club and on this this race to be a startup uh, whatever because I have to pay my bills and have a secure job and get a home take care of myself so that balance so he values more that I'm able to take care of myself and survive in this world versus this thing about cannabis well, I, I'm a dad of three, so I think that sounds like the exact same advice I would give my daughter. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. I get that. And and actually, it's a, it's a good segue in our last couple of minutes here. I want to talk about kind of where things are today. And, and part of what I was reading in your background is this idea of, of reaching out to, to communities of color, getting their input on adult use legalization, what that needs to look like, where there are gaps, and also figuring out how to better support businesses of color within the cannabis community. But what was interesting to me is that, you know, I've, I've been in this, the legal side of this industry for over a decade now, and I've seen social equity programs come and go, fail mostly. And so I'm curious, you know, one of the things I think has been missing is the input of businesses outside of the cannabis industry, right? We always think so myopically about, okay, if you want to start a cannabis business, we're talking to you, but in reality, it needs to be a much broader initiative. It sounds like that's kind of what you've been tackling, yeah? I, my background is in ethnic studies <laughs> from the University of Hawaii. Um, as a union organizer, study race, class, gender, immigration. There's no money involved in that. <laughs> really? Um, shocking. <laughs> social justice. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Well, so, <laughs> so getting that MBA, that was the, what, 
how do I make money from my skill sets? But then once I started to learn about business, I just bought a house. It's a scam. This whole real estate industry is a scam. Like business is a scam. It's a scam. All business is a scam. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, oh, wow. That's yeah. what's going on. So then you get in the cannabis space and you're like, oh, this is a wild, wild west scam. Mm-hmm. Now you speak from a perspective of black Americans in business. All of the challenges we have because of where we've come from, right? We didn't get the same opportunities as people. We don't have equality and equity and all these things. So I find myself being like, why did I get into the cannabis industry when it comes to business? What the hell is wrong with you? Why would you? This is, it's going nowhere. So I don't really, that's probably why I'm not making that much. I don't, I don't really make money from this space because I'm not going to sell people into some industry that's not going anywhere. My ex in California needs, is thinking about, they're not doing well out there. Like the folks who've been growing out there, they're not doing well. People, people are not, exactly, they're not doing well. So why would I encourage people who look like me to get in an industry where you ain't going to go nowhere, you ain't about to make no money unless you want to do some illegal stuff. And I didn't get in this industry to do illegal stuff. My dad got supported for doing the illegal stuff. I didn't get all these degrees and build my brand and my reputation to do illegal stuff. So why am I going to promote, give you the perception that you can enter this and make all this money when you can't? So let's come up with something else. Let's create some other product because at the end of the day, you have to sell, 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 sell. You want to sell in a capitalist society, then you're going to scam, scam, scam. Okay. Or you're going to market, market, market. But Which, to do things in the cannabis industry, a federally illegal drug, like something that's claimed as a drug, what you going to make money out of? Except for the ancillary things, and you're still going to be in a tough-ass industry. So I find myself often organizing people out of the industry, organizing them into building, just keep building whatever you are doing. If you have a, bo- a, a bubblegum company, just keep building the bubblegum company and create one product that is cannabis one day. What? But but the reason why I am in this space has more to do with the trauma and more to do with the fact that I use cannabis as medicine and more to do with the fuckery in this industry than I'm trying to make a dollar. And so I'm a coach. I'm like an accountability coach. I'm like a mentor. I'm a big sis. So I'm not I can't bring you into to shit. And if you want to be in here, I'm going to just lay out what I've gone through, what it is. And I'm going to support you with whatever I can bring. But I'm not going to encourage you to do some illegal stuff. Or, or get into something, I mean, I got 10,000 followers on Instagram and then I got shadow banned. So it's like, am I going to encourage you to do a bunch of dumb stuff that's going to hurt you? Or every person that does it after me, you got to do it better than me. And even then, I don't know if this is the thing you want to do because you're not going to make no money. So you're going to lose lots of money. Right. And do you have the privilege to lose lots of money? Because I'm delusional for being in this space. I should go do something that makes me money. There's so much there that you just laid out that I could talk for hours with you about. I think, unfortunately, Brosco said we have like one minute left. Okay. So I'm not even, I'm not even trying to take what you just said and like fold that into like a final thing. Cause everything you just said is 100% true. There's so much to everything, right. That you, they were just talking about. So I, I'm going to try my best and just say like, okay, so, you know, in terms of communities of color and cannabis, there's the, you started out a little bit talking about the perception piece and stigma, et cetera which is, you know, 10x the the issue for uh, communities of color that it is for white people. But how do you how do you take what you're doing passion-wise, taking the money off the table and, and, you know, of course, advising people not to get into cannabis, which I think is a great piece of advice. <laughs> how do you take that and to build on the on the idea of, of destigmatizing and eventually making it something more equitable in the future, at least so we hope? 
Yeah, I think at the core, MVP is just continuing to share my story and to speak out. You know, I think as people get to know who I am as a person, I think they'll respect my experience and what's connected to it, right? Like going back to changing the perception, personal accountability, taking care of myself, just trying to be the best person that I can. That's all I'm talking. That's that. This is just my journey to survive life, be the best person I can so I can sleep well and not cause harm. And so if I'm talking about cannabis, it's, that's still the core. If I'm talking about African immigrants, that's still the core. If I'm ca- talking about personal accountability, your creative work, that's the core. And I, I like I like many of things. And cannabis is my medicine right now. And cannabis was an opportunity for my father. And he got deported for it. I don't think that's fair. Not when our whole country is run off of scams. And not when they use, they, they use cannabis to racially profile people. I don't think that's fair. It's just so so it's just the things that I care about. And you'll see this that we were talking about sub minimum wage for tip workers. I'm gonna talk about that because I was a tip worker and I was getting sub minimum wage. <laughs> like yep. the things that I care about, the things that involve my life, I'm active in them. You know, just the same as I gotta pay my bills. So I'm actively working and doing a good job so I can get my paycheck. So I think it's that personal accountability, accountability for your values accountability for your medicine, accountability for your loved ones, accountability for your country. You know what I mean? Accountability for it. Like I am into politics because that shit matters. I, you know, I am into cannabis because I use it. And my alternative is a pill that's effing all y'all up in an industry that doesn't care about keeping you healthy. So just make it make sense. Right. Gotcha. Take some accountability for the things that you care about, for the things that make you well. Makes, makes all the sense in the world to me. So um, thank you very much, uh, to for sharing your story, sharing that journey, sharing your, your perspective on this super helpful. Like I said, I, this could be a couple of hours discussion. And <laughs> maybe at some point we'll have an opportunity to have that discussion and meet, uh, uh, somewhere other than on a podcast. But in the meantime, you know, keep up the, the work and the hustle and, um, you know, appreciate all you're doing. Thank you. And I'll just close out. We did create a product. It's called um, Dragon Affirmation Cards, and they help kind of educate and inspire you. So check them out on our website, shopblackdragons.com. It's just like a pack, pack of like cards, 30 packs of cards, 30 cards. And sure. each one has a word about the industry and also some inspiration because we have to learn about things before knowing. So check it out. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Appreciate it.